Luke chapter 9. Today we will be studying together verses 37 to 50. We're very quickly coming to the shift in Jesus' ministry. I know I've been talking like that for the last couple weeks, but in the passages that we've been studying, we're in the hinge. We're, we're, we're swinging. And it all changes in chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. So since chapter 4, verse 14, we've been with Jesus in Galilee, in the north of Israel. And we're going to turn with him when we get to verse 51. Um, Today, verses 37 to 50. So if you're there, let's read together. Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's let's look to the Lord for his help. Father, we come to you because on our own we are absolutely helpless. We don't even have the ability to perceive the, the power and the truth of your word apart from your Holy Spirit enlightening our understanding and giving us illumination. And so we come to you for that. And Father, Jesus speaks very forcefully here against the pride of our hearts. Father, that, that is our lifelong struggle. It has been our historical struggle ever since the fall. Father, I pray that we would make strides today 
by your spirit, working through your word against pride, the pride that hinders us from following you faithfully, the pride that hinders our worship. Would you help us? Continue the work that you promised to complete at the coming of Jesus. Continue to sanctify us, make us holy, make us like your son. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Why is it that Jesus is never accused of pride? I did not extremely carefully read through the Gospels to double-check this. But I thought long and hard about it and was trying to think through one scenario after another in which Jesus faced accusations. And I don't think that Jesus was ever accused of pride. And I think that that is pretty strange and incredible. Jesus spoke more highly of himself than any other man has ever spoken. And he is never accused of self-congratulation. He called all people to himself. And he is never accused of campaigning. In verses we recently studied, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He says, if you gain the whole world and do not have me, you will lose yourself. And nobody thinks the arrogance of the man. He says, I am the truth. And he says, I am lowly at heart. And nobody even blinks. And that is incredible. They accuse him of being a Samaritan, which to them was a gross sin in itself. They accuse him of being insane, of having a demon, of being... um, of Sabbath breaking, and of blaspheming God, but never just of pride. They never say that he is being showy. They never accuse him of arrogance. How is it that this man can claim such things about himself all the time and not be proud? The answer is not, well, they're true. You know, and if they're true, if you can back it up, then go right ahead. That's not the case. Because the wealthiest man who goes on and on and on about his wealth is proud, whether or not it's true. He's proud unless he is going on and on about his wealth in order to give it for the life of the world. That's what we see in Christ. You know, Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And that's why we know that Jesus was not proud. And that's why we also sing his praises. Because all that he is, and all that he does, and all that he freely says he is, and says that he has, 
He freely gives for the life of the world. How do we know that Jesus is not proud? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Now on the other hand, when the disciples talk about their own personal greatness, we know that it's dumb and we know they are deluded. Why is that? It's because they are completely clueless about the cross. At this point in their lives, in this point of their career in following Jesus, they love the glory of Jesus, don't they? And they, in fact, deny the cross. Not only do they dismiss it, but they deny it. Like Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, This, the cross, will never happen to you. In fact, they will go on denying it until the resurrection. They'll be in this state of denial. It won't make sense until they see the risen Lord. So, because their Christology, their understanding of Christ, has no room for a cross, neither does their discipleship. That's why they're so self-centered and they can't hide it. Because any Christology that is not cross-centered is going to be man-centered. And any discipleship that is not cross-centered is going to be self-centered. This is what I'm trying to say. If you don't keep the cross front and center... You will be. You will be front and center. And as absurd as it sounds, you will make following Jesus all about you. And that's horrible. It is horrible to, you know, to find out the horrible effects of pride and of selfishness. I mean, just consider, go ask Adam and Eve. How horrible and destructive pride is. It's horrible and it's also easy to be. It's so easy to be proud because of the natural bent of our hearts. So we must tune into Christ. We must listen to Christ or our pride will ruin us. Let's uh, recap the context quickly before we launch back into these verses. Jesus, you remember, had taken Peter, James, and John up into the mountain. And while it was while that he was in the middle of seeking the face of his father that God unveiled, drew back the curtain on the beauty of the glory of his son. When Peter then asked for three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, God answered in the cloud. Even before he spoke words, God was answering through the cloud that came down and overshadowed them. We talked about this. Without words, God was saying, there is only one tabernacle that is needed, and he is already here, and he remains alone. Jesus, God's Son, his chosen one, the fullness and the brightness of the glory of God. He is the dwelling place of God's glory. 
And God commands us all, listen to him. Listen to my son. It says in verse 37 that when Jesus came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. This is the least surprising thing at this point in the text. I mean, when Jesus comes from, down from the mountain, and there's a great crowd. We're not thinking, why is there such a big crowd here? You know, what's the, what's the attraction? It seems like whenever Jesus gets back from somewhere, there is a great crowd to meet him. So there's no surprise here. It says in verse 38, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So what we're going to do with this text before we go any further, what we're going to do is once again, we are going to exult in the success of Christ, in the glory of Christ. We're going to brag on our Lord for a little while and then... We're going to turn on a dime, just like Jesus does, and talk about pride. Talk about his cross and talk about pride. So back to the text. Back to these verses. You know that this wasn't the only crisis. There were all kinds of crises happening around Christ all the time. And so, yeah, this is an only child dealing with this a horrible um, issue, this struggle. But they're not the only one that Jesus helps. But when he helps them, it's like they're the only one. When he loves, it's like they're the only one. Because he's never hurried. He's never in a rush. Never checking his watch or checking his phone to look for his next appointment. It's like they're the only one, and he pours himself into each one. The Father reports to Jesus the inability of Christ's disciples. And it's not so much their inability to handle this that grieves Christ. It's the unbelief behind the inability. And so Christ responds in verse 41. He says, O faithless and twisted generation." How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And I hadn't thought about that until I was just reading through the passage earlier at the start of this. That's powerful. Bring your son here. Don't take your crisis there. Don't drop your burden on their plate. Bring your problem Bring your struggle, bring your temptation, bring your crisis, bring your illness, bring all your need here. Unbelief grieves the Lord, and it's no wonder. Because what good do you have that is not from God? Whether you're talking about material, physical, spiritual, any well-being, all your good comes from God. What has he done that would make him look untrustworthy? Unbelief grieves him. And it grieves Christ here. 
He's grieved at their unbelief. Now, it sounds like, it might sound like, he is sick and tired. He's had it up to here with these disciples, and he is just ready to leave them in the dust. But that's not the case. That's not the case. He's not ready to leave them in the dust. He is ready for them to leave their unbelief in the dust. He is looking for forward to that day when they will stop acting like the faithless, twisted generation of old. He is looking forward to the day when these 12 disciples will stop looking and acting like old Israel and will begin to act and believe and to follow him like the new Israel that he has called them to be and is making them. So don't think that he is sick and tired of them. Because even when he does leave, when he ascends back to the Father in departure, and the text says in Matthew 28 that some doubted, even just before Christ ascended, some who were gathered there to witness his ascension, it says doubted. But Jesus wasn't saying, finally, I am out of here. Adios, deal with your own issues. He beamed over them and he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. said, Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So it's not that he is sick and tired of them. He is ready for unbelief to turn to faith. It says, While he was coming, that is, the father with his son, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Jesus stops the demon in its last-ditch effort, mid-attack. He rebukes it, halts it in its attack by the word of his power. Let's not stop exulting in this. Let's not stop bragging on our Lord You know, in these things. Uh, maybe you could think of it like this. Um, I don't know a more powerless word in the English language than stop. It is spoken at my house every day, many, many times a day. And this is what happens when one sibling says to another, stop. The activity, the the pestering doesn't stop it actually increases. That's the uh, impotence of the, the, the word stop in my house. But when Jesus says stop, it is very, very different. Do you remember when Jesus healed Lazarus? He called to the man who had been in the grave for four days. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And, and many have imagined that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus, that all the dead would have risen with him. Such is the power of the word of the Lord. So I think that we can apply that to this incident here. That if Jesus had not rebuked this demon only, that all demonic activity would have come to a screeching halt. And one day it will. One day, our great enemy will be destroyed. As the hymn, the old 1500s Reformation hymn says, 
the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. As we should be. Every time we read one of the miracles of our Lord. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Do you remember when God said about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? He said, listen to him. Here, Jesus means the same thing with different words when he says, let these words sink into your ears. It happens while Luke is very specific here. It happens while the adulation of the crowd is still ringing in the ears of the disciples. That Jesus says to them, let these words sink in. Let that fade. Let these words sink in. This adulation is not going to last. The crowd shouting for the crown for Jesus is very quickly going to change its mind and they're going to scream for a cross instead. It says in verse 45, but they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I want to take a moment for a little uh, side theological reflection on these two consecutive statements in 44 and 45. We often talk, and this is very practical, it might sound theoretical or abstract, but it's not. We talk about the sovereignty of God, absolute over all things, And we talk about the responsibility of men in all the choices and decisions, movements and and motives of their heart in all things. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and the incredible tension between the two. Like, if God is in control of all things from the beginning, knows the end from the beginning, how is it that people can be culpable for their sin? And I've even had young people come to me and ask, you know, I've had this conversation many times that is so practical. If you struggle with that, accepting the full absolute sovereignty of God over everything and our responsibility and all the choices we make, look at these two statements back to back because both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men are put forward in these two statements. Verse 44, Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered by whom? By God. Not by Satan, not by Caiaphas the high priest, not by Judas. He is about to be delivered by God into the hands of men. And who would be responsible for what happened to Jesus? His torture and his crucifixion and the mockery and the blasphemy and all of that. Not God. But men, God is sovereign, but men are responsible. Next statement, verse 45, it says that God concealed the truth from them. 
This is a passive statement that it was concealed. Meaning, they didn't deliberately in this moment shut their eyes and say no, or plug their ears, whatever, and say, we're not listening to this. God concealed this from them. But who is responsible for their ignorance? And who is responsible for their unbelief? The disciples are. And Luke is not saying this was just this incident, but even when Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ and then went on to say after Jesus predicted his death, far be it from you, Lord, this won't happen to you, the truth was concealed. God had concealed it. Just as God revealed the identity of his son to Peter, so he concealed the truth about the cross. But Peter was still to blame. Peter is still culpable for his ignorance and for his unbelief. So two verses, back to back, speaking of very different things, but both positing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Back from our side note, theological reflection. Why would God conceal the truth from his disciples? Why? I think two things. It's not a judgment and it's not a condemnation but it is a disciplinary measure. Because of their delusions of grandeur and because of their unbelief, they're disciplined and the truth of the cross is concealed from them. But also it's a mercy. God is disciplining them and he is being merciful to them because they don't have the capacity to bear this truth at this point in their discipleship. Do you remember... Even when Jesus was a moment before his arrest, he said to his disciples, I have many things to tell you. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You can't bear them. This is a load too great for you. And so he didn't reveal what they needed to know because they couldn't bear it yet. Same here. It's discipline and it's mercy and God conceals the truth from them. So the crowds are praising him. And right in the middle of their praise, Jesus points to his cross. Why does he do that? What's his point in doing this? His point is that not a single one of his disciples should ever expect the praise of the world, and much less exult in that praise. You're going to get it. You're going to get praise from the world at some point, and many points, for who you are, for how you look, for the way you speak, for your talents, skills, the way you do your job. You're going to get praise from the world, but don't expect it, and much less exult in it. Don't boast in it. Don't uh, thrive on it. Don't live off of that And if you right now are living off the praises of the world and you love it when when you get it, be warned. Everyone who lives for the praises of the world will not have what they want, not in the end. Because this is the way of the world. They exalt a man to tear him down. And of course, I'm saying... You know, they're not going to have the praises of the world in the end because the world as we know it, that is, everyone who is living in darkness and rebelling against God is going to be gone. 
so that there's not going to be praise from the world. But I mean, even in this lifetime, the world exalts people to tear them down. Uh, I know this is a sports reference, so a lot of you uh, might not be on your radar or in your memory or whatever, but do you remember the case of Tiger Woods that went beyond sports? Tiger Woods was the greatest golfer that the history of golf had seen for a long time. I mean, just incredible, unprecedented success entering into a field of hundreds and winning event after event and major after major, and nobody could touch the guy. I mean, when he was 21, he won the Masters by a million strokes. Not really, but anyway. So he was at the top of his game, and the world was saying, Tiger, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. But then, all of these dark secrets, scandalous secrets of his private life came out... And immediately he is the fodder of the, the late night talk shows and everybody loved it. They loved him at the top and even more they loved him crashing and burning. That's the way of the world. Exalt a man to tear him down. But the way of Christ is to humble a person first in order to lift him up. Die to the world. Die to the praises of the world. Because the way that we go is the way of the cross. Now, in light of that, you know, Jesus saying, I'm going to be delivered up into the hands of men. He's speaking of his crucifixion and his death. Look at the next statement in verse 46. It's stunning. And it's just as sick as it is stunning. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is not just a little, uh, you know, little stain taint on their record. We're going to see this again at the Last Supper. They argue about which is greater. As Jesus prepares for his death, they're saying, I'm better, no me. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You can count on this. As soon as the cross gets put where the disciples are putting it, to the side, man takes center stage. What happens for me is when the cross does not fill the frame of my vision, I do. If the cross is blurred, I'm in focus. That's what happens That's exactly the disciples' problem. You see, their Christology, their understanding of Jesus, has a massive void right at the center of it. And only the cross can fill it. But because they deny the cross and dismiss the cross and say, hey, we don't understand this. What is he talking about? But we don't want to ask him. We're too afraid. We're going to look dumb. Because they dismiss the cross, they're all in competition for that central place the prime spot. We want it. They're all in competition for it. And this is where they so desperately need the Spirit of Christ to enlighten, illumine their understanding. And we do too. It it sounds so ridiculous what they are doing here, and it's just sick, but we are the same. We're the same as they are. You see, we all have in common one great ability. We want to to boast, 
and think highly of ourselves because of our abilities. You have one ability greater than every other ability that you have, and we all share that ability in common. And that is the ability to self-deceive. That's our most native uh, and common ability. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone thinks that he is something, oh, I'm something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, beginning in verse 47, we have two, two tests. We're going to test ourselves for pride, okay? And Jesus is going to expose our pride. These are unique tests. We wouldn't think to apply these tests that he comes up with here. And, and one is kind of more individual. The first one is like an individual test. And the, the other is more of a corporate test. It's for the entire family. Verse 47 first. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is last among you all, is, uh, who, who is least among you all, is the one who is great. Okay? Jesus responds with a, a pretty graphic object lesson here and, and this test. We have to understand the background here, though, because if we don't, we're thinking, hey, I like kids. You know, I don't have a problem with children and I'll put them by my side anytime, receive them in his name. So, hey, I guess I must be, I must be pretty humble, right? Um, in that day and age, and it, this continued for, for many centuries afterward, children were not valued and cherished like they are cherished and valued in our society. Um, and children suffered horrible things like exposure. Uh, for people who are in poverty did this. People who had great wealth did this. When their babies were born, left them out to die. They weren't cherished and valued for a lot of reasons. Um, one, well, I really don't have time to get into it, but let me just say very quickly, the infant mortality rate was astronomically higher than in our own. And so we see these one-child families quite seem to be pretty common in Luke. You know why they were not uncommon? was because of the infant mortality rate. And so a lot of people would detach themselves affectionately from small children because when something, if something, and it wouldn't be uncommon, you know, happened to that child, they could go on. They could continue to function and not be, you know, just completely paralyzed by their grief. So, anyway, there's a lot of stuff that explains it, but the point is that they didn't like little children like we do. Um, and, and in fact, there were a lot of religious teachers in Jesus' day that thought that small children were just a total waste of time and energy and resources. So Jesus takes this little boy, and he puts him by his side, and he is saying to the disciples, are you willing? Are you willing to do the same? He says that the one who receives the little child in his name receives him. There's a chain reaction. You receive the little one in my name, you receive me. You receive me, you receive the one who sent me. 
So he says, are you willing to do the same? Of course, we say, yeah, not an issue. I like kids. But we need to make Christ's object lesson um, contemporary. The question is really, who are you not willing to put by your side? Who are you not willing to put beside you? You see, the logic of the gospel is that Christ has put someone beside him who is not like him. Yes, created in his image, true. But in that one, the image of Christ is defaced, it's corrupted, it's it's broken. He put someone beside him who is not like him, and we're not talking about the little boy. It's you. He put you by his side. And so he says, yes, I will have him, and yes, I will have her. Yes, I will have him. Yes, I will have her. Yes, I will have them. So the question is, do you say no to any of his yeses? Do you say no to any of those to whom Jesus says yes? Like, are you not willing to have them in your house when Jesus welcomes them into his house? As if we would say, Lord, I wish you would be a little more discerning like I am. And you know that this would be a betrayal of Christ, right? It's a betrayal of Christ. It's not only saying I am greater than them, but I am greater than him. He receives them, but I will not. Jesus, by his cross, creates a new community with a culture of grace where every sinner of all stripes, of all kinds, who looks to him is welcome together. Every sinner who looks to him is welcome into the Father's arms, and into the Father's house. So any Christian who is guarding the gaps of the world, you know, the gaps that the old culture and the old way of life created, any Christian who is guarding those gaps is disregarding Christ and Christ in them. The cross and Christ in them. So racism and ageism and classism and all of those isms, sexism and tribalism of every kind are nothing but betrayals of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how he tests us for pride. Who are you willing to put beside you? The world says no. I say yes. Do you agree? Verse 49 then, John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So each disciple thought that he was in a class by himself, and together they thought that they as a group were in a class by themselves. David Garland writes, The same selfish pride that drove the disciples to seek precedence in their in-group rouses them to ensure that outsiders remain outsiders and unempowered. 
This man was not their competitor. He was not trying to hijack the name of Jesus for his own personal agenda. Uh, we see that later in the New Testament, uh, when someone tries to speak in the name of Jesus or asks for this power, offers to pay money to have that power. They just want to hijack the name of Jesus for their own agenda. That's not this man. God has given to this individual truth and love in power, and it's for Christ's glory. But the disciples wanted to stop him. And it's not because Jesus was taking, or this man was taking glory from Jesus, but taking glory from them. They wanted the attention and the adulation on all of that that came with it. So a test of your humility is who are you willing to put by your side? And a test of our humility together is who are we willing to work with? Who are we willing to walk alongside and to partner with in the ministry of the gospel? That's a test of our humility together. So that anyone who proclaims the pure truth of the word of God, whose message is not against ours, whose message is not against the standard of Scripture, the pure gospel of Jesus, is not against us. They're with us. There are no rivals in the ministry of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. No rivals. We're not in competition with other churches proclaiming the pure gospel. So just as we must never look to to one-up each other in the church, we're not to look to one-up other churches We work together. The whole point is we must understand the cross. We must keep it central and we must keep it focus, in focus. I want you to understand something key as we wrap up. The cross is not only about the humility of Christ. The cross speaks better than anything else to the greatness and the glory of Christ. For our sakes, he who is rich became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That is to his endless praise. Jesus said, it is through the cross that I will be lifted up. Through the cross, we see his greatness and his glory. Lifted up means two things. Literally, he's going to be lifted up. He's going to be hung above the earth, suspended. But it also speaks metaphorically. He will be exalted high. God will give to him the highest name, higher than any other name. Because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God God exalted him. The death of Christ is the glory of Christ. So it is the same for you. Do you understand this? It is the same for you and for me. When we die to ourselves, when we die to the world, when we die to the praises of the world, that's glory, that's greatness. When we die to tribalism and to classism, when we die to our preferences and we die to our cliques, in order to welcome all 
kinds and embrace them so that they may live too. That's glory and greatness. This morning, I just want to ask you, have you lost focus on the cross? What pride do you have that Jesus is calling you to forsake today? Is there conviction? Is there conviction? Do you understand the horror of the sin of pride? One final encouragement. Because the, fi- the Bible does not want you to simmer in your guilt. At the cross, Jesus took your pride. Jesus took the guilt and Jesus took the shame of it. He bore it. So you don't. You don't. Not the shame, not the guilt. So now we may look to Him freely and be free. We can win. We can win in the battle of pride. Let's pray. Father, please help us all we're truly in desperate need because in even in the good that we do as we seek to follow Jesus we know that our um more morality our moral actions virtues our obedience all of it our public obedience even our private obedience that no one else sees is is tainted with this sin of pride Thank you for the cross of Christ where he bore this guilt and the shame of ours. I pray, Father, that everyone who is here believing in Christ would realize that we are free. We're not under the condemnation of pride anymore. Adam and Eve were condemned. Because of the cross, we are not condemned. So I pray, Father, that we'd go out in the battle against pride with confidence because of the cross. And may we live in light of the cross with its scenes before us, with its shadow over us. We pray that you would keep us near the cross and we would be humble and we would die to ourselves, die to our preferences and die to the praises of this world and walk humbly with our God. We ask you for your help and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.